Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I don't know if you've noticed, but Christmas is nearly here. The wait is nearly over. And I don't know whether hearing this phrase fills you with a sense of joy and wonder or a sense of dread and despair. But the harsh reality is that it's true and Christmas is nearly here. You can hardly hope to switch on the radio in the car or wander into a high street shop without being accosted by Mariah Carey or Wham or another Christmas song of your choice. Played at full volume from the speakers, there are lights hanging from trees and houses everywhere and I'm being reminded again and again and again and again that I need to do some Christmas shopping. I really love Christmas. I don't know about you. From the decorations and the silly jumpers to mulled wine and really obnoxiously terrible Christmas films, it's one of my absolute favorite times of the year. And so it might strike you as a little bit strange that this morning, despite having entirely spoken about Christmas for the past couple of minutes, I want to talk about something else. And more specifically, I want to talk about waiting and the time before Christmas, Advent. The last few weeks and for the next two, we've been in the season of Advent. And for many of us, that word might just mean a calendar where if you're really fortunate, you get a bit of chocolate. I was never given the chocolate Advent calendars as a child. Yeah, it's very sad. I had a very lovely Christian one that told me Bible verses and things like that. Um, But fortunately, I married into a family where they give you chocolate Advent calendars. So I now get sent one every year, which is very lovely. Um, Thanks, John's mum. But I grew up in a church where Advent was a really significant time in the church calendar. But for me, it's now mostly that time before Christmas um, when I forget to open my Advent calendar and John gets really annoyed with me because the chocolate is just left until the last moment. But lately, God's been reminding me of the significance of the season of Advent. It's a season of waiting, a season of expectation, and a time of longing. Fleming Rutledge, in her really helpful book, Advent, the Once and Future Coming of Jesus Christ, which I have here and haven't yet finished, but I'm happy to lend out once I have finished, um, declares this phrase, that Advent... this isn't working. Oh, it's working. Hooray. Advent begins in the dark. Advent begins in the dark. When I look at the world around me, and as we sang in that song, we're in a time of desperation where all we know is doubt and fear. I'm sometimes filled with joy and wonder at the goodness that I see. Sometimes, like the classic Hugh Grant voiceover in Love Actually, I do genuinely think that love actually is all around us. But more often than not, I feel despair. I feel the acute sense of the darkness. I look at destruction and chaos and war and suffering and pain, and I wonder, where is God in the midst of this? When will this end? I feel that the world is in the dark. And if you're a believer in Jesus here this morning, you probably should despair at the state of this world. You should look around and see how dark it is and feel just so sorrowful and sad and desperate. We should despair at how far from God this world is and how far from God people are. We're waiting, expecting, and longing for more. And so Advent is a season for us. It's a season for you and me to recognize this dark, 
but point us to a reality that even in the waiting, in the season of Advent, which really is our whole lives, even in the dark, we can trust that we have a faithful God who will meet us and give us a hope and a future beyond what we see now. So to dive deeper into this idea of waiting, we're going to be looking at a passage in scripture in a book called 1 Samuel. We'll be reading chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. Um, But first, let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how you reveal yourself through it. Thank you that we can know you because of what you have done. And Jesus, I pray that um, by your spirit, you would open our hearts and our minds to receive what you have for us this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would anoint my lips to say the words that you have and that any other words would fall on deaf ears. Amen. Um, If you want to follow along, please uh, grab your Bible and turn to 1 Samuel, but it will also appear on the screen um, behind me. Um, Great, I'll give you a moment to turn if you want to. Fab. Um, So 1 Samuel 1 from verse 1. There was a certain man from Ramathame, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once they had finished, once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel 
saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Um, In the Old Testament, this story and the book of 1 Samuel comes chronologically after a book called Judges, in which God repeatedly sends judges to the people of Israel to encourage them to turn back to God. And the repeated refrain of the book of Judges is this. In those days, there was no king of Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. As of the book of the Bible, if you've never read it, it's a pretty bleak read. Um, But it is really helpful for us to understand the state of the people of Israel. They're sinking further and further into depravity and sin and evil. And they are in desperate need of someone to guide them. They need a king. And though they don't know it yet, the king they're waiting for is a guy called David, who becomes quite significant in the Old Testament. But really, David is just pointing them to a need for someone even greater, a Messiah that's going to come. So as we come to this story in 1 Samuel, we know that Israel is waiting, expecting, hoping for God to send someone in there who will help them in their lawlessness. They are in the dark, just as the season of Advent is. And we meet a woman, by all accounts very ordinary, called Hannah. And Hannah is going to help us to understand the story of Israel and hopefully the story of us. You might not be familiar with this story, but it's one I turn to time and time again for comfort from the Lord. And it's very dear to me, a story through which I've felt the loving embrace of the Father. So Hannah is married to a guy called Elkanah. Um, And when we first meet him, Um, We're told all about his lineage and the tribe that he comes from. He is son of a lot of very complicated names, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong. But anyway, he is son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. Thank you. Uh, His credentials are all listed for us in this passage. And this is significant because in the Old Testament, lineage is used to show who the people of God are. So we can see that Elkanah is descended from Ephraim, who is the great-great-grandson of Abraham, who is the patriarch of all the people of Israel. So Elkanah is a legitimate guy from Israel. He's a legitimate person in the people of God. And then we're told that Elkanah has two wives, which we won't go into, but was fairly normal. Um, And they're called Hannah and Peninnah. And we learn that Peninnah has children, but in stark contrast to Elkanah being the son of all of these people, we just read that Hannah has none. Hannah has no children. And from then on, this becomes the central theme of this story because Hannah desperately longs for and wants a child. Hannah is a woman in desperation. We learn in verses 4 and 5 that she is loved by her husband so much that he would give her a double portion, but she is unable to bear his children. To add salt to the wound, she's constantly provoked by this other wife because she can't have children, so much so that we learn in verse 7 that she wept and would not eat. And then her husband shows that he doesn't really understand her pain in one of the most insensitive lines that he could ever have said. Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Hannah is in the darkness. And I want to imagine for a moment how she may have felt. Not only is she unable to have the thing she so desperately longs for, a child, but she is bullied, she is belittled, she is alone, she is wrought with despair. And this isn't a brief time, but we're told that this has been happening for years and years. 
as I was praying about what I wanted to share today, I felt like God brought me to this passage and through various means, I felt a nudge to share from it. And I was pretty reluctant to say the least. The story of Hannah, though it is one that has comforted me in a pretty dark time, is one that is wrought with emotion and sorrow and pain. And perhaps when you think about the fact that I'm going to share from that this morning, you really want to just run out of the room. Um, A few years ago, John and I began our journey in trying to conceive a child. And for many who haven't been on this journey, culture and the world around us would suggest that it is incredibly easygoing. And the reality was very, very different. The reality was that I'd find myself month after month sitting on the toilet crying because I received another negative pregnancy test or I I knew that I wasn't expecting a child. Like Hannah, I was racked with despair. I felt acutely the desperation and longing for a child that meant most days felt incredibly dark. I'd struggle to be happy around other people with children. I was deeply envious. I felt constant guilt in my body for not being able to conceive. I was angry at God for letting it happen. And this isn't just our story. The subject of fertility is one that isn't easy to talk about. And in fact, whether it's something you have struggled with or if you continue to do so, it can be the darkest season of someone's life. And I'm desperate for us as a church to be open about this struggle so that people don't have to suffer alone because I just felt so incredibly lonely throughout the whole process. And the reality is that for many people in this room, discussing a desire for children is a heartbreaking thing because it speaks to a painful reality. Though we sometimes don't talk about, many of us will have experienced the pain of trying to conceive or the pain of child loss or the longing for a child and not being in circumstances where that can happen. Or perhaps infertility isn't an issue for you, but you see areas in your life where you are desperate for the hand of God to move, whether in sickness or in finances or whatever it might be. For you, it might feel like you're in the darkness and you are waiting, longing for something to change. And for you, I pray that the Holy Spirit might be a comforter to you this morning and that the story of Hannah might be a balm to you as it has been to me. And if this is too much for you, please feel free to tune out if you need to, but please try and grab someone at the end to talk through it with. Hannah's story is in the midst of the dark. She is waiting, she is longing, she is expectant. And what is her response to the state in which she finds herself? For us, it can be really easy to think that we just wallow in our sorrow and our pain. And that's a really understandable response. But this is Hannah's response. She decides to pray to Yahweh. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. At the time, many people in Hannah's circumstances might have turned to someone else. There were other gods Um, that some people turn to, which is just proof more that Israel had turned into depravity and sin and lawlessness. They didn't recognize necessarily that God, Yahweh, was the only God. And so it's significant that rather than turn to, say, the goddess of fertility, Asherah, Hannah chooses instead to turn, turn to Yahweh. She comes to him and she is desperate. We read about Hannah's desperate prayers from verse 10. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. 
As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Hannah pours out her whole heart before the Lord, revealing her longing and her hope before him. In verse 13, we hear that she was praying in her heart and Eli the priest saw her and thought that she was drunk. Have you ever been in a situation where you are so desperate before God that you look like you're drunk? Have you ever poured out your soul to the Lord with no worry or care what you look like because you're in such anguish? There have only been a few occasions in my life where I recognize this experience of Hannah, but I definitely resonate with it. While we were in the midst of this longing for a child, I remember one morning I took myself off to Blackhall Rocks with a big thermos of tea and I just sat atop a cliff and I wept and I wept and I wept. I cried at God. I shouted at God. I bared my soul to him, desperate for him to answer me. Sometimes we don't have the words and we just need to pour out our soul to God. I often find it really helpful to pray in tongues in those situations because I just don't have the words, but the Spirit intercedes for us. And God, in his goodness and his kindness, will meet us in this place. But to get there, we first have to recognize the darkness and despair of the situation. Like Hannah, we need to get to the place where we can say that we are deeply troubled and pouring out our soul to the Lord. We need to begin in the dark. And as we look back through the story and Hannah's prayer, we learn something significant, that God is with us in the dark. The story of Hannah is not about the conclusion of her prayer. So often we can read a story like this and think that if we just pray hard enough, we will get what we pray for. Or conversely, that if we haven't seen the fruit of whatever we've prayed for, we aren't holy enough or we aren't praying hard enough. Hannah's story isn't about praying hard enough until God gave her a child. Hannah's story is about waiting and longing and preparing in the dark and trusting that God is with her in the midst of it. It's about coming to God with her whole heart and trusting him. That's why there are 19 verses in this story about waiting and there's only one verse about birth. It is a story about waiting and longing and expectation Part of my reluctance about sharing from this passage and a little bit of mine and John's story is that we do now have a child. And our testimony is not the birth of our daughter, though she is a wonderful gift, but our testimony is learning to trust God's faithful goodness in the midst of the dark. Whatever the outcome would have been, whether we had a child or we didn't, God would still be good. God would still be kind. If the end of this story was that Hannah poured out her soul to the Lord and there wasn't Samuel, God would still be good. God would still be kind. And so the story of Hannah is an Advent story. And we remember that Advent begins in the dark. It begins in the dark and tells us about the longing for something more, the hope and expectation of something to come. Because Hannah's story is not just about her. It's about Israel waiting for a Messiah, crying out in their darkness and despair for a saviour to come. 
And it's about God's faithfulness in not abandoning them, but instead sending them a saviour whose name is Jesus. We learn in the words of the book of John that the word, which is God himself, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God himself descended into the darkness as the light of the world and showed a glimmer of hope. As the words of a famous carol say, there was a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices because Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, had come. Like Hannah's patient expectation for a child, Israel have patiently waited for God to rescue them, and he finally had. And that baby Jesus, born to an ordinary woman, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, taking upon himself the punishment and sin that Israel and we deserve for our lawlessness. In dying and then rising from the dead, he conquered death and sin forever. So that we need never live in a world like the one described in Judges, where in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Jesus coming to earth, which we celebrate at Christmas, echoes the story of Hannah as she receives the longing of her heart, her son Samuel. But then if Jesus has come, why then do we still celebrate and observe Advent? Why then is there still suffering and sin in the world if this long-awaited Messiah has come? Why do we still see the darkness and how can we see the light? Because Jesus has defeated sin, but we are not yet in the fullness of his kingdom. And we see that all around us every day. Sin is still here and darkness is still prevalent in our world and in our lives. And so Hannah's story is still our story. We are an Advent people. We are still waiting. Scripture tells us that though we don't know when, Jesus will come again. Hallelujah. And at Advent, we remember and we celebrate this. Though we begin in the dark, we know that the light is coming. We have a day to look forward to when Jesus will come to take his rightful place as king and ruler over all things. He will establish his kingdom and he will sit upon the throne forever. And we will see the fulfillment of the words that a vision in Revelation tells us about. It's quite small, sorry. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Jesus is coming back. But for the moment, we just trust that he is coming. He has said he will. He will come and put a full end to death and dying and pain. But for now, we wait as Hannah did and as Israel did with eager expectation and desperate longing. We wait and we pray, trusting that God is with us in the darkness and that his faithful goodness, kindness, 
gentleness and love will envelop us until that day when he comes again in his full majesty and glory. Christmas is nearly here. And in the dark, we hope and we long and we pray that so too is the coming of the Lord again. Let's pray and I'll invite the band to come back up. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you love us and that you are faithful and good. God, that in the midst of darkness, in the midst of trial and difficulty and suffering, we can trust that you walk alongside us. And Lord, we thank you for this story of Hannah. We thank you that she turns to you and trusts in you. And Lord, I pray that you would give us that same fervor for you, that when we see things are difficult, that we would turn to you in prayer and that we would trust that you will come alongside us. Lord, we thank you that you came as a baby and that we celebrate that glorious truth at Christmas. But Lord, we thank you as well that you will come again and that you will make all things new, that there will be no more death or crying or pain, but you will be king and ruler over all the earth forever and ever. Amen.